Earlier on the week, I, uh, at relatively short notice, was asked to do a funeral for uh, actually a family member of mine, but the, the fam it's extended family, and, and they are um, Irish Catholics, and for reasons I won't bother to go into, uh, the priest was unable to do the funeral, so I did it. And um, it was, again, it was an extraordinary event. And uh, uh, I uh, want to just say that one of the, as I was praying about preparing for that, the Lord really impressed upon me a, a very strong little concept, which for reasons that may or may not be clear to you would seem appropriate in an Irish Catholic context. But I was so struck by this little, this little expression that the Lord gave me that I thought I would bring it this morning because it leads quite nicely in what I want to say this morning. And what the Lord said was that many people are taught that God the Father is looking for any excuse to damn them to hell. Many people are taught or are under the impression that God the Father is looking for any excuse to damn them to hell. So if you are a religious person, you may well be living under a, sense, a cloud, a sense of guilt, shame, like you'll never be good enough, and, and you're just in fear of God. But rather than looking for any excuse to damn you to hell, the reality is, is that Father God is actually looking for any excuse to save you. That's the truth. God the Father is looking for any excuse to save you. And he's found an excuse, the one and only excuse that will work. And that excuse is a person, and he's called Jesus. And uh, last week I was saying how important, in my view, it is that at times like this, when there are so many conflicting voices, and this talk is the second in this little Voices series I'm doing, it's so important that the church of Jesus Christ gets clear in its mind what the message of the gospel is. In fact, Jesus, and we read this last week, we're not going to read the whole thing, but Jesus actually says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. And we say, well, we need to understand clearly what the good news is because it gets scrambled. Some people think that God is wanting to, any excuse to damn them to hell. We need to get this clear. And I, so I said that over these next two or three weeks, and probably this will be a theme that we will pursue to some degree for the next few weeks, if not months, keep gnawing at it like a dog does with an old bone. We'll keep coming at it. So we get clear in our own mind what God the Father has in mind and what Jesus was talking about when he talks about the good news. So let's pray now because, you know, as I prepare this thing, I'm just so aware I need God's help to communicate it clearly to you uh, as never before. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we want to say thank you to you because you are our helper. You do not leave us to struggle and blunder around in the dark. You are the one who leads us into all truth. We pray for revelation today that each one of us, wherever we are on our spiritual journey, Lord God, will have revelation today of what it is we're dealing with, what it is, you know, the ball court, Lord, the, the playing field that we're talking about when we're talking about the good news. We also pray, Lord God, I also pray that there will not be confusion, that the, that the word will not be ripped from them, but that the Lord God, you will cause the word that is spoken today and indeed next week to bear much fruit in, in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, one last thing, and then we'll get straight into it. I'm going to actually be looking at John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. We'll read that through. But I want to say this. And, and, and for once in my life, 
I, I cannot impress upon you how important it is that you hear next week's message. Now, you may already know that you're going to be with, you know, Fat Auntie N Nelly in Cobham or something like that. Okay. God bless you. You know, these things are sent to try us. But I, I need you to say, and I need you to nod enthusiastically, that you will listen to next week's podcast. Because if you just have this message, I'm going to preach what I truthfully and honestly believe is truth today. It's important that you hear it. But it's just as important that you're here next week. So please, will you say, will you, will you either resolve now to either be here or listen to next week's message on the podcast? Yeah? Everybody nod enthusiastically. It is of eternal consequence. I cannot stress it enough. It is very important that you hear next week's message. So let's read this passage here. An interesting passage. Those of you who are Bible scholars will, will know that this passage is, is sometimes disputed. It's in, in the scriptures, but they sometimes say, some people say, it shouldn't be in there. It's not in the oldest things. And other people say, it's great that it's in there. Well, you can make up your own mind about that, but we're not going to get into contentious points. It's in the Bible. It's good enough for me. We're going to read it. John chapter 8, beginning at the first verse. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives... And at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. And again he stooped down and carried on writing in the ground. At this, those who heard began to slip away, one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Boy, this is a dramatic story. Uh, Dennis pointed out to me a lovely little clip on Mel Gibson's film of the passion it's it's I, I was tempted to use it but there's no it's all done silently and there's no script and the script is so terribly important so I chose not to use it but it's very dramatic here we are in in Jerusalem in the temple and dawn is breaking and people are beginning to get up and go about their daily business dogs are barking old men are coughing women are standing at the door chatting to neighbors the, the city's waking up but as the light begins to spread across the temple court, Jesus is already there, a voice the, bringing the kingdom, bringing the gospel, bringing the good news. Jesus is already there. And already a little crowd has began to gather around him. When all of a sudden, there's a bit of a hubbub. And into the midst of it all come these, these, uh, these priests, these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, and they are both judge and jury, the judge and the jury, 
because they have found this woman who has been caught in the act of adultery, red-handed if you like, caught in the act of adultery, and they bring her into the temple presence, into the temple court, and confront Jesus with this woman and this, this act of adultery. And as it says in the text, in the midst of all this clamor, what they were about was trying to catch Jesus out. You see, he was beginning to get this reputation even now, and it's early in the Gospels, of being subversive. They thought he was lightweight on sin. But more importantly, in their eyes, he was lightweight on the law of Moses. And how could he be a teacher? How could he be one of those, one of those who were regarded in the community as, as the guardians of the community if he wasn't a teacher and an upholder of the law of Moses. And they thought they knew what Jesus was going to do. They thought they knew what he was like. They thought they knew that he would just shrug his shoulders and say, oh, come on, guys. It's a bit early in the day for this. Let her go. Poor woman. No, oh, for heaven's sake, you know. That's kind of Something like that was what they were sure Jesus was going to do. That Jesus was just going to say, look, oh, for, oh, come on. And somehow he was going to seek, unsuccessfully probably, but seek to, to see this woman walk scot-free. And that was the excuse that they would have needed to condemn him. To denounce him first, but then to condemn him. So Jesus would be condemned, not the woman, but Jesus. So this is the situation that's, that's transpiring here. So we've got the voice of the teacher, we've got the voices of the, of, of the, the judge and jury, the teachers of the law and the, the Pharisees, and we've actually got the voice of Moses, the lawgiver. Because the state of Israel was, was built upon the Ten Commandments and the laws that attended to that. The whole identity of Israel depended upon the fact that they were God's own people. And how did they know they were God's own people? Because they had met with God and their great and humble leader, Moses, had got the very law of God. So they weren't making it up. They had been given the very law of God and it had been entrusted to them. And so the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were guardians of this, and they were charged with the responsibility of teaching the people of Israel what it was that made them who they were. So Moses, the lawgiver, is there. And actually, it does say, as many of you will know, in the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment, do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. You know, here we are, let's, let's just come into the present for a moment. Uh, I've had only this week uh, a, a conversation with someone where, bless their hearts, they've confessed adultery. We all know people who have, who have or are in committing the act of adultery. It seems to be an epidemic. And it is ravaging our society. It is absolutely tearing our society apart. And, and it's tearing our children apart. You know, I must say, it's one of my most favorite days of the year, uh, days of the month, when we have the community again, the kids come in. Uh, it's a bit chaotic, it's a bit messy. I love it, though. 
It's, it's wonderful to have the children in and to see, you know, the kids and their parents, their guardians, their aunts, their uncles, bringing, their, bringing the kids uh, and just being together. It's a precious time. I hope you, I, I know mums and dads, sometimes it's a challenge. I hope you appreciate it. And, and those of you who don't have children, I hope you recognize what's going on. There's something wonderful about that. But in our society as a whole, our, ch- our, our children, not just our, our adults, are being ravaged by, by adultery and sexual promiscuity. Uh, you know, I could spend a lot of time on that, but actually that's not my purpose now. I want to move on. But I will say this. There is this kind of culture current idea that you can break up in a marriage, you and your spouse can fall out, fall apart, whatever, but you construct a life whereby the kids are somehow protected. It's a myth, it's a fantasy. And all it does is serve your sin. Fathers, if you love your kids, if you truly love your children, you will love their mother. Mothers, if you love your kids, if you truly love your kids, you will love their father. It really does work that way. Buying them big presents at Christmas, taking them out to Alton Towers three times a month just does not cut it. I'm sorry. I'd love to spare your blushes, but it doesn't cut it. We need to guard our relationships. You know, this, this funeral I did this week, the widow had been married to her husband for 54 years. We paused at that moment and we applauded them. Longevity in marriage needs to be upheld and applauded because we hear too much of the other stuff. Okay. So... The trouble, going back to the story with this, is that actually, and I'm going to sort of skip a little bit here, James, because I have a problem with time, but going on to screen 10 on my script. The trouble is that that actually the accusers are right. Their attitude totally sucks. That's a theological expression. (laughs) But they're right. They're actually right. This woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Who knows what the social fallout's going to be? Husbands and wives are going to fall out with one another. Kids are going to end in tears. it's, It's social mayhem. No wonder that the scripture says in Romans 23, 23, the wages of sin is death. There's only one result. There's only one outcome of sin, whatever it is. Not just adultery, but there's only one outcome when it comes to sin, and that's death. It's not just a little self-indulgence. It's not just a moment of weakness. It's not just you know, whatever excuse, whatever we come it is The wages of sin is death. And Jesus, I believe, Jesus is riding in the sand... Not because he's ignoring them, but he's actually frantically trying to think what to do. That's my theory. You may not like that. He's buying time. Sorry, what was that you said? 
But then, of course, he's more than man. He is God himself. And he comes up with this incredible statement. He stands up and he says to, the, to these hot-blooded, bad-attitude leaders of the community who have it not only in for the woman, but they actually have it in for him. And he looks them in the eye and he says, okay. He doesn't dispute the, the justice of the claim or anything. He doesn't argue that. In fact, he agrees with the judgment. He agrees with Moses' law. A stoning ought to be taking place. So he actually says, let the first of you, let he that is without sin, cast the first stone. He's agreeing with the judgment. He's even agreeing with the verdict, death. He's, for himself, he's not giving them any satisfaction. He is agreeing with them, but he is saying this, let you, who are without sin, cast the first stone. Well, as many a preacher before me, better preachers at that, have said, you know, all the hot-blooded guys, they're all ready to go. They're actually selecting their stones. But the older guys have been round the block a couple of times. Their heads drop. They think about the struggles they're having with their own family. The argument they had with their wife. I had a little fizzy thing with Fliss coming in this morning because she was, the windscreen wipers on the car were going and there was no rain on it. And, okay, I confess I'm a bad husband. I'm a heel, drives me crazy. We're sat there, Fliss is fiddling with something, the traffic lights turn green. I can stand it no more. I'm human. And these guys, they were human too. And the older men, some shook their head, some looked at one another. They understood that he that is without sin throw the first stone. Well, it's not going to be me. They started to turn away. Jesus carries on riding in the ground. The woman is standing there sobbing, and there's a hush. Nobody quite knows what's going to happen. And you know the way this story works. Eventually, they all go. All her accusers, her judge, her jury, they've all gone. And at that point, Jesus stands up, and he looks at the woman. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Has no one condemned you? You know, there's a lot of interest currently about the News International case. James Murdoch was in, in court again and it's being televised. There's been the Michael Jackson doctor thing. There's a lot of courtroom drama going on. And those of you who know about these things know that you know, the case is presented, the case of the prosecution, the case of the defense, and there's cross-examining and all the rest of it. Then the jury goes out and makes a decision as to whether or not the person is, is found guilty, is guilty of the crime as charged, or some lesser crime, whatever. And, and usually, you know, the judge offers some advice at that point. And finally, when the jury comes back, they say, we find him or her guilty. 
The verdict is guilty. But at that point, the judge, there's sometimes a break, even a few days. There's a sort of a time where people take some time out. People are generally not sentenced in the heat of the moment. But they come back for sentencing. The guilty verdict is there. But now there is a pause before the sentence the sentence is pronounced, and it can be any of a number of things. The sentence might be suspended. They might be put on parole. You know, they have to behave well, unless, and if they don't behave well, then all of this that is stacked against them and, and the two years imprisonment is suddenly actioned. But there is a pause between the guilty verdict and the passing of sentence. Now, all too often when people read this story, they hear Jesus saying, sometimes because they want him to say this, go on then, away with you, go on, I don't know, whatever next. They hear Jesus shrugging his shoulders and saying, oh, you were terribly silly, weren't you? But he doesn't say that. He actually says to the woman, where are those who condemn you? They've gone. Well, I'm not going to condemn you either. Go now and leave your life of sin. Her verdict is that she's on parole. She can walk free, she can go home, and she escapes to live another day, but she's not been let off. It's not like some naughty child that's misbehaved. There is something hanging over her. It's funny, people don't like that kind of Jesus. You know, I was reading this bit of, uh, bit of theology this week, and one of the things that this person was saying was that all too often we make God in our own image. We have really got to stop making God in our own image. It's idolatry. We have got to make God in the likeness of Jesus. Philip said to him, said to Jesus, Jesus, there's just one thing we want. Just, just show us what the Father's like. And, and actually, and I read the text, it's like Jesus wants to wring Philip's neck. He says, what do you mean, show me what the Father's like? Have you been with me all that? When you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. Our God the Father should be Jesus-shaped. And Jesus isn't gentle, Jesus meek and mild. You know, one of the most shocking stories I think that Jesus, that we hear about Jesus is that he went, he went to this place called the Pool of Bethesda, where all the, a lot of the long-term sick were. It says in the script that the, 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 the paralyzed were there, the blind, the deaf, the, I mean the really pitiful cases and he finds a man there this is I think in John 5 anybody want a brownie point it's in when is it where is it John 5 somewhere like that it's early in the gospels isn't it John 4 maybe I don't know anyway never mind it's in John's gospel Jesus steps over all these sick people <clears throat> John 5 thank you so if you want to read it check it out this is one of the most shocking stories. And, and Jesus steps over all these people, and he's, he's a bit of a man on a mission. He ignores lots of pitiful cases, but he picks out one pitiful case, and he says, 
tell me, you know, what's your story? And he says, well, I've been paralyzed here for 38 years, lying on this mat, and I'm waiting for the angel to come and disturb the waters. And there was this kind of folklore thing, who knows whether it was true or not, but every now and then the angel of God would come down, trouble the water, stir it all up, and the first one in got healed. Now, whatever you like and think of that, it's up to you. But this guy clearly believed that if he could only get into the water first, then he would be healed. He'd been there for 38 years. The trouble was he was all but paralyzed. And then the sad thing is, he says, and there's no one to help me into the water. Not only was this man paralyzed, a beggar, and had been for 38 years, but he was, he was disconnected from the, the society, the community. He had no friends, no families, no helpers to help him into the water. He's on his own. Well, Jesus heals him. Now, that causes a bit of trouble. He ends up being interviewed by the uh, authorities because they're outraged by it. I think it was a Sabbath, something like that. There's some sort of issue. Anyway, Jesus comes across this guy again and says, what did they say to you? And the little conversation takes place. And then the shocking thing is that Jesus says to this poor man, 38 years paralyzed through no fault of his own, without family, without friends, a beggar who's just been given his life back. Jesus says to him, and you can sense the weight, and it says, go and sin no more unless something worse happens to you. Boy, does he need one of Linda's counseling classes. That's Jesus being pastoral. That's Jesus being empathetic. That's Jesus being loving. Go and sin no more unless something worse happens to you. You see, that man was on parole. And I think it is so important that you get next week's message. Remember that? Because I'm not going to have time to bring this boat round and back into the dock. What I'm trying to do is paint the picture of just how serious this situation is. Because you will never understand the gospel if you don't understand the problem. But the reality is, is that Jesus is not light on sin. He is, God the Father is looking for an excuse to save us. And the excuse is Jesus. But it's not like I am with some of my grandchildren. I am probably not the best grandparent. Because they, my grandkids can do no wrong. My kids, they could do a lot wrong. But my grandkids can do no wrong. They can get away with murder, and I'll say, oh, he was just having a bad day. He was up very late last night. He's had too much sugar. You know, I'm, I'm so indulgent. I'm a terrible grandfather. God is not like a terrible grandfather who says, oh, what am I going to do with you? You drive me mad. What can I say? He's out of control. But I love him. Oh. That is not God the Father. That is a little voice in your head. Get rid of him. It's a demon. God the Father is serious about sin. Sin separates us from him. That's the most serious thing. It separates us from one another. It creates and sows suspicion in community. It tears community apart. It tears families apart. I cannot tell you 
How many funerals I have done over the years where there'd been families that have sat on one side or the other side because they fell out over some issue 13 years ago. Somebody did something, so somebody said something, so somebody fell out with somebody, and there is just devastation. This is the world we live in. Sin ravages the spirit and will destroy the soul. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. And Jesus is buying time for us. For as long as he puts another breath in my body, in your body, he is buying time for us so that we can get serious about our sin, serious about our society's sin, and serious about our sin before God. And his word to us today is like the words to the woman. The judgment is guilty. Char founders charged over every single one of us all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, from priest to poet, but today is not the day of judgment. It's coming. But today is not the day of judgment. It's coming. And today Jesus says to us, come on, stand up. Come on, let me put a hand around you. I'm not gonna condemn you today. Go and sin no more. You're a pitiful case. You've been paralyzed for 30. I, I know. Yeah, thank you. I was aware of that. Go and sin no more. You were a victim of a. Yeah. Go and sin no more. Your mother did. Your father. You were a. Go and sin no more. As the band comes up, I beg you to listen to next week's message. We can only stand and face up to the truth about ourselves when we know the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. If you do not hear next week's message, you will not be able to face the truth about yourself. Earlier on this year, and I hope this doesn't gall anyone, I got a little bit of a tax refund, unexpectedly. Boy, I nearly passed out. And I had, because I've, I'm a bit of a classic car fan, and I've been sort of doing a bit of work on my car, I'd run up to a few expenses which I'd put on my credit card, Fliss knew about them, and I was paying them off with my pocket money. I know it's a bit sad, I'm 58, but I get pocket money. Fliss gives me two and six a week. And I suddenly realized I could pay off that card. And as I was talking to Flissy, I realized that actually she had a store card and there was another store card. And we sat down, we looked at our little bits and pieces, and we were absolutely gobsmacked at all these little bits and pieces and how they added up. But it was okay. We could face the truth. We could face the reality of our rather ragged finances in the middle of June because we had this wonderful tax refund that could pay it all off. You will forever be in denial about your sin 
until you realize just what Christ has done for you. Once you understand the length and the breadth of the love of God for you, you will be able to face up to your sin. Until that time, you will be always running, believing that God is looking for every excuse to condemn you to hell. Please pray this week. Please get serious about your sin, and please listen to next Sunday's message, so help me God. All right?